Welcome to the WorkSmart Podcast. I'm Philip Allen. Globally, regulators have been focused on culture and conduct in the financial services industry. Accountability regimes have been implemented in Hong Kong, Australia, and the United Kingdom. So it's no surprise that the Monetary Authority of Singapore, MAS, issued in 2020 its own individual accountability and conduct guidelines for financial institutions. In this two-part podcast series, I discuss with WorkSmart's Director of Market Engagement and Regulation, Judy Pardy, the culture and conduct expectations of MAS, with the steps financial institutions can take to seamlessly prepare, follow, and generate real business benefit from these guidelines that come into effect on the 10th of September 2021. I start off by asking Julie to outline the core components of this new accountability regime. Well, in terms of this new regime, it's very similar in terms of content to a certain extent as the UK regime, because it's all about accountability, it's all about governance, and it's all about good conduct. And Singapore Monetary Authority refers to it as the IAC regime, and that's individual accountability and conduct. So for that, read those three things, governance, accountability and conduct. When does it come into force? Well, this is quite an interesting one. So the guidelines for this regime were written and published back in September 2020. The actual guidelines come into force on the 10th of September 2021. But I think it's worth saying where guidance sits in the context of the Monetary Authority of Singapore and what does guidance mean really in terms of them overseeing the market. And really what they talk about is the guidelines setting out principles or best practice standards that firms should adhere to around the governance of conduct for financial institutions or people. So it's slightly differently laid out than in the UK. So if you are as a a firm contravene a guideline, it's not a criminal offence in Singapore. It doesn't attract civil penalties. But what the regulator expects is once it's published guidelines, that the institutions that it applies to or the individuals should observe the spirit of the guidelines. But I think it operates very similarly to the UK when we have rules and guidance, because what the regulator in Singapore does is it will consider how a firm and an individual observe the guidelines. It will also have a look at how they implement them and operate within them. And then it will consider that in the context of their assessment that that institutional person, that risk that they present. So while some people may say, well, actually, you don't really need to do that. It's only guidance. I would completely disagree. It gives the firm and the individual the opportunity to demonstrate that they know that this is best practice standards and they know that the regulator wouldn't go to all this trouble in issuing this guidance if they didn't expect firms to follow it. Who do these guidelines affect? Well, this is interesting because in all of the information and the guidance the regulators put out, it talks about financial institutions that operate in the jurisdiction of Singapore with a headcount of 50 or more. So that's who they absolutely expect to adopt the guidance. But what they also say is that do you know what? We will have financial institutions with less than 50 employees. However, we still expect them to achieve the outcomes. Now, we can talk about the outcomes in a moment, but there are outcomes that the regulator is expecting financial institutions to achieve. So it's still saying, 
you know what? You should operate within the spirit of this guidance. Two things that I think it's worth bearing in mind. First of all, if Maz is working with a firm that has less than 50 employees and it finds issues, maybe in accountability, in oversight or in conduct, then they may well require firms to adopt the guidance and it would be at their asking. So that's the first thing. And secondly, there's this point around the fact that you you could be a really large firm with a higher number of employees than 50. Now, if there are elements of the guidance that isn't relevant to your business, the way that you operate, the way that your business is constructed, then that would be an acceptable reason not to follow the guidance. But having reviewed it, what is there for it to achieve and how it's expected to operate in practice, it is hard to see how this might not apply to the majority of firms. So how might firms go about approaching implementation of this? Because this may be new to a number of firms. Yes, I think there's a number of things. And I think now is the right point to talk about the outcomes that the regulator is expecting financial institutions to achieve. And I think this might help in terms of how they might go about this. So there's five outcomes that Maz have published. And this sort of helps give you a view of where they're going with this. So I think it's worth taking those one by one. So they talk about senior managers that have responsibility for managing and conducting the financial institution's core functions are clearly identified. And so this is the piece, who's in control, who does what, where and how. And so we need to go about who are our leaders within this institution, within this jurisdiction, and who are the ones that manage those core functions of a business that the regulator would expect to actually talk to if they were having a discussion with the business. No different than here in the UK, that senior managers are basically fit for purpose in their roles and their conduct. And so we have there probably just an extension of what's already in, in place. And that is that you have to, rather than just assess somebody's fitness and probity, at the outset, when they go into a role, that you're constantly doing this on a regular basis to make sure that they remain fit for purpose. So all of these things point towards the maybe the processes, the overview that firms should consider. And the, the other three, without going through them in too much detail at this point, is around having a good governance framework and where material risk takers are identified and their fitness and probity is checked on a regular basis and that everybody within an organisation is fulfilling their role in an appropriate manner from a conduct perspective. So if we put all of those things together and go back to your question, how might firms go about approaching this implementation? One of them is, I think, is a good old fashioned approach. Get yourself a massive whiteboard, get yourself a project team that have representation from all parts of the business and draw out physically what the oversight and governance structure in your organisation looks like. And then the key functions or the core structures within the firm, what are they? You know, risk, compliance, operations, finance, HR, and actually go through that in line with Maz's list of core management functions and actually start to map out. So who actually leads in this business for what? And then 
actually talk to your UK colleagues, talk to your trade bodies, talk to firms like us that have been through this over and over again. And actually, we can help firms visualise because there is a visualisation piece with the governance, with the reporting lines, with the committees here that will help firms work out what they need to do and why. Yes, indeed. And worth noting that the information on senior management and on employees in material risk functions don't have to be formally submitted to MAS, unlike the UK. However, it's an important point for listeners to note on this. MAS can take supervisory action against an FI that does not meet the outcomes that you've outlined in previous answers. Absolutely. And I think this is it's a really good point. I think the most important thing to say about this is, and, and the firms will realise this when they get into the meat of it, that these type of accountability regimes live and breathe because things change on a regular basis. So whatever processes, systems and controls they put in to help them manage this, you need to know that this is going to move and grow and change shape depending on how the organisation moves and grows in its market. So it's really important that at any given moment in time, you as a financial institution can go back and go, okay, I can tell you, say in 2025, I can go back to October 2021 and tell you exactly what committees were in existence, what were their reporting lines, which people were on those committees, which senior managers were involved. And that is kind of a critical piece that we've learned in the UK as part of any accountability regime. Julie, what can FIs listening to this podcast learn from UK firms you've supported implement the accountability regime SMCR? I'd probably put them into three categories, I think, here in terms of lesson learned. So project teams would be, first of all, seeing as we're still in that early phase of getting ready for implementation. And that is making sure that your project teams are effectively resourced and funded. So We saw in the UK that you might have a very, very small project team made up of people that were on temporary contracts, and that had a really negative effect. They didn't have enough time to get implemented by the right deadlines, and what happened was there was no transfer of learning into the organisation because those people were on short-term contracts, and when they left, that knowledge and experience went with them. So that would be my first thing. My second thing would be the makeup of the teams that are going to implement and manage this. It only works well with the collaboration. There's a lot of discussion in the UK about who owns an accountability regime and where firms have tried to say, well, the compliance team own it or HR own it. That's quite dangerous because actually everybody owns accountability because this is about individual accountability, corporate governance and conduct. So everybody has a role to play. So project teams that are resourced from different parts of the business that come together in a collegiate manner are the ones that we saw that were most effective. The other point is having a senior manager who is the champion of this who is focused on making sure that this happens and is sponsoring it, not only from a personal perspective, but is also giving the project the money and the funding that it needs in whatever way that is. So for resource, if they need it, for training, if they need it, and one thing that they will most definitely need for software development or purchase. 
But you'd expect me to say that, wouldn't you, Philip? <laughs> <laughs> I would do. And based upon that answer, there'll be a number of people listening to this podcast asking that because they are covered by Bear in Australia or even the FCA in the UK, and they may have operations in Singapore already, are they subject to the accountability regimes of Singapore or could they be exempt from Maz's guidelines on this? Well, that's a really interesting question because we have this effectively in the EU and with the UK now outside the EU, you have this home state, host state regulatory status. But the bottom line here is it doesn't matter what regulatory regime you're subject to in any other part of the world. If you are operating in Singapore, then you're expected to implement the guidelines that have been developed by MAS. You can take your learning from, as you say, the Australian regime, Hong Kong regime, UK regime, but you have to effectively operate within the guidelines and the spirit in which they were intended to be implemented. What is MAS trying to achieve by implementing these guidelines for firms? Well, they've been quite vocal about what they're trying to achieve. And it's quite interesting. And firms should read into this. If they're thinking, well, this is guidelines, it's guidance, therefore we don't have to do it. The regulator will take a very dim view if firms don't, because they've got a real focus and a real clarity of mind about what they're expecting. They're expecting senior managers who are responsible for that business to be clearly identified and to be clear about that for which they are accountable. They're looking for people to be fit for purpose, whether that's senior managers or material risk personnel. They're expecting people that operate in financial institutions to act positively with good conduct at all time. And they're expecting absolute clarity over accountability at senior manager level. So first things first, how does a firm go about the task of identifying those people who hold core management functions or CMFs? Well, I'd go back to the comment that I made earlier and the whiteboard. I'd draw my board table. I'd draw my exec committee below that because there will be differences, obviously, between the board and the operation of the business. And then I'd start plotting my people. Maz have done quite a detailed list of what they describe as core management functions. So all of the things that you'd expect to see on there, your chief executive officer, your chief finance officer, your chief risk officer, and so on. But what they also say is, do you know what? If these functions aren't relevant to your business and your operation, then don't have them because you, you know, you don't need them. This is not making a firm have things it doesn't need. But if you don't have somebody, for example, running a role that's entitled chief risk officer, you probably do have a head of risk. And so if you have don't have a chief risk officer, then your head of risk is your most senior manager and therefore you're identifying there. The challenge I suspect will be as it was in the UK, where you start to look at heads of and you try and decide, you know, is this big enough? Is this important enough that we should be putting these people into this regime? And those will be very relevant to what type of business a firm has as to whether it's banking, insurance, broking, advisory. But there is a lot of guidance from the regulator that helps walk a firm through how they might work out which core management functions they should be classifying as relevant to them. But I think that pictorial board committees, who sits where, can actually quite often help firms identify if they've got gaps. And based upon your experience in this area, where there have been challenges, or actually it's been insightful challenges in a positive way, 
that care should be taken around the edges of responsibility where there's an overlap of where there may be more than one senior manager for a specific core management function. And that whiteboard exercise that you suggested that firms take, that should iron out those overlapping edges. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it allows firms a bit of a stop take, doesn't it, where you can go, okay, I've got overlap here. So do we still want that overlap or do we reorganize? And have I got underlap? You know, if there's overlaps, there will be underlaps. And therefore, the whole purpose of this exercise is to strengthen governance. And so to go through that process where you've got two senior managers that maybe are adjacent to each other, to have that consideration about, okay, if you put that next to that, have we got full coverage or do we need to reassess the items that senior managers are accountable for? When we look at key challenges that organisations may face based upon experiences in different jurisdictions, it's fair to say that all employees need to understand the responsibility map and making sure that employees in material risk functions to senior managers really grasp hold of their responsibilities. Is that the next challenge that you faced with firms in the UK, Australia and Hong Kong? Yeah, I think you're right, Philip. There's this piece where your project team do the visualisation, they do the mapping and they look at it and see where they believe things stand. And then there's the consultation with the business because one of the challenges in the UK was, for example, some senior managers actually didn't want that level of accountability and that granular level of accountability. And it did see some senior managers leave businesses So there has to be that consultation piece. Now, many will just take the pragmatic approach. Well, do you know what? You're a senior manager already. You know what you're in for when you took the job. So it should be not a surprise if it's reviewed and more granularly written down so that there are accountability statements so that you could see people leaving roles. You could see people also arguing. So you might see territorial grabs in terms of accountability within a firm where people want more accountability or where people want less accountability. So there'll be all those sorts of negotiations and there'll be this need and this desire for information and a thirst for, you know, we need more information, we need more clarity, we need a legal view on this, we need the regulator's view. And a big part of this is about socialising the content of the regime within an organisation through informal and formal meetings to allow people to get familiar and comfortable for what's going to be um, expected of them. Governance is all about structure, control and oversight. Julie, will this mean that FIs have to overhaul their committees and boards? When you look at the guidance, you really don't have to overhaul your committees and your board structure. However, and there is a big however, one of the things that we found in the UK was the absolute value of doing so. And also for the business to challenge itself about what are committees with reporting lines to the board and which ones are operational committees of the business. Also, how the membership and attendance of those committees are reflected, reported, recognised, recorded. Because what we saw, certainly in the UK, and was quite interesting from a tech perspective, is that we were very much asked that there seemed to be committees of the board and committees that were operational that didn't have board reporting lines where firms 
could not at any given moment tell you what the terms of reference or lay their hands on the latest terms of reference for that, distinguish between somebody who was a member, somebody who had voting rights, somebody that was just attending for information. And so what this regime does is gives firms the opportunity to do this. And what we found within the UK was that we actually gained an awful lot of insight into how firms were operating, which helped us develop some really neat functionality within our solution that allowed people, you know, that moment in time to have their committees all logged, what the reporting lines were, what their terms of reference were, and this difference between who has what role within a committee meeting, and then the ability to log all of the actions arising and then distribute those minutes to all of the relevant people. So, So I think firms will find it a really eye-opening process if they go through that as part of this. What I'm taking away from this is that the lines of reporting responsibility should be made clear and simple, not overly complex. Are there any other lessons learned from the UK about how firms ironed out their governance or they reviewed their structure or they improved their control and oversight that you could share with listeners? Yeah, I think the thing that the projects teams did and then brought it to the senior managers, and you have that forum where you've got all of the senior managers together, to go through all of the key functions within a business. So, you know, you look at, so what type of business are we? Therefore, what are our key business functions? And some of them are going to be the same for every business and some of them are going to be more niche, but actually going through it. So if I'm lending, you know, I've got my underwriting department. If I'm dealing with retail consumers, I've got certain controls and restrictions around marketing to those type of individuals. But there'll be some things that are consistent across the piece with HR teams, with risk teams, with legal teams, with compliance teams. And I think firms need to go through that process of what are all of the key functions within this business? Therefore, which senior managers do those map to? And there will be some of them that are probably mixed. So, for example, outsourcing, third-party supplier relationships, business continuity, and trying to understand where there is a, a those splits between senior managers and getting the senior managers around the table and saying, does this look right in the context of how we believe this organisation operates? And I think that's very important for the project team to do the research and the legwork, bring it to the senior managers and go, OK, currently it looks like this. Therefore, does it look right to you and does it feel right to you? The key thing is when we're talking about committees, when we're talking about governance, is documentation is key and ensuring that the material is kept updated in line with changes in the business and in the organisation. And you've highlighted one particular area on formal handovers between senior managers. How was that approached by firms in the UK under SMCR? There's always been a requirement in the UK for, you know, effectively orderly handover between one and another, but not in such a focused way as has been defined with our accountability regime. And what we saw was as people were trying to calibrate within their organisation what was right, you know, extremes of behaviour, so whereby you'd have a very short and sharp handover that maybe gave you four or five key points Um, all the way through to senior managers who would keep day books in addition to recording every conversation they had, 
logging every email and kind of putting that together as a story, then all the way through to senior managers that might have a holding statement of responsibility linked to a handover, whereby quarterly they would update it. So in the here and now, what would I be telling somebody if something happened to me tomorrow and I needed to hand over to somebody and what would the narrative look like? And so you've got all of those different things going on. From a regulatory perspective, what we see the regulator looking for in the UK or have looked for in the UK is that piece around key areas. So if I am responsible for risk in an organisation and I'm handing over to another risk officer as I leave the organisation, what are the key risks across the piece and what are the initiatives involved in managing those And actually, what are the things within the business that keep me awake at night and therefore possibly need the most focus from somebody incoming? Financial firms across the globe have used WorkSmart software to meet their regulatory responsibilities. Some have done that from the get-go in anticipation of the accountability regime. Others have done so later down the line. Julie, is there a pattern in the marketplace towards the adoption of technology like WorkSmart's? It's been really interesting and really informative in terms of how the market has gone. So as you say, there were many that right at the beginning really realised how difficult this would be to manage because it it moves and it grows and it changes on a regular basis, i.e. with the accountability and the governance. But also you have those regular cycles of things where you're doing fitness and probity and fitness and propriety here in the UK on a regular basis for new starters, for senior managers, for certain categories of staff. And so what we found is you've got those firms that set up at outset and got themselves into very good structured routines. You've got firms that maybe like to self-build tech to manage this kind of things. And you've got firms that felt it was okay just to use paper processes. And what we found is increasingly firms coming to us with big populations of people that need fitness and probity that they can't manage on a manual basis. And where they've had internal audits or external audits that say that their management of governance, accountability and conduct is not sufficient. And so after a while, it becomes more and more apparent when you're on a non-tech focused solution. And so we've seen people come to market at that point. So there's been a steady and increasing flow of firms that realise that part of the effective management of the regime is to employ tech at an early stage. Thanks, Julia. Thank you for listening to part one of this two-part podcast series on the IAC guidelines. In our next episode, we review outcomes two and four of the guidelines on fitness and probity, looking specifically at how MAS will hold senior managers and material risk personnel responsible for their own actions and the actions of their employees. For the latest news, podcasts and webinars on conduct, culture and accountability, don't forget to check out the insights section of our website, worksmart.co.uk.